Hello and welcome to Brainstorm. Well, for obvious reasons, what goes on in the brain of newborn babies is somewhat shrouded in mystery. Babies can't talk and we hold little or no memories of those early times. But they're called our formative years for a reason. Because what happens to the infant brain and how it develops appears to lay down fundamental patterns for the rest of our lives. There is arguably no period more important in human development than the first few years of our lives. So how does the infant brain develop? How do scientists find out what babies are thinking? And what do babies' brains need for optimal development to produce healthy, contented children and adults? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next half an hour. And with me are Mally Coyne, clinical psychologist and lecturer at the School of Psychology at NUI Galway, and Rodrigue Cusack, professor of cognitive neuroscience at the Infant Centre, Trinity College in Dublin. You're both very welcome. Uh, Rodrigue, you're originally from Wales. You then ended up uh, working for many years in Cambridge University looking at brain injury and you found yourself sort of veering towards the infant brain, trying to find the answers. What was it about the infant brain that you found so fascinating? I, I mean, I think uh, trying to understand babies is an, is a, is an absolutely fascinating problem. Um, and, you know, who, who hasn't looked in the eyes of a baby and wondered what's going on in there? Um, it's also clinically really important. So neonatologists who look after babies in hospitals um, use brain imaging um, and the modern tools to, to of cognitive neuroscience to try to understand, um, to try to diagnose what's happening with, with babies and try to plan their treatment. Um, and you've, you've called it a frontier area, which is obviously what any scientist wants to be in. But, you know, the, the knowledge that you're getting from this space is, is new all the time. So in particular, yes, uh, the, 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 the breakthroughs in brain imaging, which allow us to look inside babies' brains, um, are, are really, um, you know, provides a whole new way to try to understand what's going on in, in babies' minds. And, and your wife is a neuroscientist as well in Trinity. She specialises in ageing and dementia. So I think you must have curious discussions at home. But your six-year-old child, you know, I, I just wonder how, if anything, did your research shape the way that you interacted when your son was born with him and, and, and brought him up as a parent? Definitely one thing that made a big impression was the um, recent, quite recent discovery of the importance of really speaking to your baby and speaking in a rich way to your baby. So not sort of just... They're not just passively absorbing what you what you say, what's around them, but really they're they're interacting with the parents. They need these rich interactions. So, um, you know, and you spoke a lot to him. I spoke a lot to my child, and I, I spoke to him about all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> so you might, yes, yeah, it so. went in somewhere, I'm sure. And Mally, you um, you had an interesting background. You didn't live in Ireland until you were about eighteen. Your father was a diplomat. Uh, your family was constantly on the move, and you, you've described yourself as an anxious sensitive child. You said there were family tensions. I played the role of the caretaker, making things better. I felt the weight of the world. I just wonder, is it too obvious to draw a direct link from from that experience in terms of now what you're doing, which is helping parents manage their own kids? I think they're completely linked. You know, um, Alice Miller in her book, The Drama of Being a Child, talks about how, as as you know, in terms of people that go into the helping professions, a lot of them have a history of being the caregiver in their homes and becoming used to, you know, being in that role and getting something out of that role, I suppose. And that's what it, what it was like for me growing up. And 
from the age of 15, I was really interested in doing psychology and in helping people. Um, when I was much younger, I was thinking maybe a paediatrician, but then I suppose psychology kind of became um, more something I was fascinated by. And then I went into Trinity to, to study psychology. And what fascinated me most was child development. I had this brilliant lecturer called Sheila Green. And just listening to how babies and children develop and the impact of, you know, their experiences on them just absolutely fascinated me. And then when I became a clinical psychologist, I decided I want to specialise in that area because I feel like it is, you know, one of the most critical periods of time where you can really help support a parent to help their child to have optimal development, particularly in those first three years of life. And now, knowing everything that you know from your work, how do you understand your own childhood and the kind of stresses and strains that you seem to have experienced? I'm still very curious, you know, but all I know is I don't play blame games. And that's what I always talk about to parents. It's about good enough parenting and that we come into our roles as parents, um, you know, with certain patterns from the times that we were young. And um, those are things that we have a choice about now with awareness. I think having awareness, you know, doesn't matter how many stressors you've had as a child. If you have awareness of those stressors, that's actually going to help to build that secure attachment with your baby and there's an amazing study by Fonagi that I always quote um, to, to say that so there's always hope. And, and when we think Rodri about the infant brain from say zero to three years of age I mean one thing that is so striking about newborn humans is just how helpless they are. I mean I spend my time on farms and you look at a foal that emerges within an hour It's, you know, basically like it's mum, you know, it's able to run around, it can feed itself, it's got a huge awareness of where it's at, can run away from predators. And I just wonder, you know, what is it about humans that, you know, it seems like such a burden to have a newborn that needs so much help for so many years? Exactly. I think this is a fascinating question. I mean, a a human baby will only roll over around three or four months and it will maybe begin to crawl at nine months. So they're incredibly helpless for a long time. Um, and I think it's it's a really um, important question that we have to understand is why a human baby's helps so, for so long. So this is one of the core uh, questions that that my research group is currently focused upon. And and why is that? I mean, obviously, there's theories about the size of the brain coming out of the the the, the, the woman that you know there needs to be a kind of a, a trade off between the size of the brain and the size of the woman, and therefore you know the development, the time that it needed to to develop that brain it just takes longer than other species because we have this sort of cognitive ability. But you know, why is it that, that the humans are so helpless? Sure, there's this this idea, the kind of classic explanation is this is called the obstetrical dilemma and this is the idea that you know we're, we're there's a limit on how big the if we're going to walk efficiently that places a limit on the pelvis size which places a limit on the size of the birth canal and because humans have big heads this means we have to be born early and so basically according to this explanation we're just waiting around for our brains to mature for the first few months and you know first year um uh, and so that's the kind of classic explanation. And what neuroimaging is allowing us to do is to test that idea. So according to that idea, the brain should be quite immature to start with. Um, and there shouldn't be very much going on um, if it's going to explain this helplessness. As so with neuroimaging, we can start to look into that question. And what are you finding? So 
what we're finding is the, the fantastic thing about neuroimaging, and, and we use MRI, is that we can measure the brain in lots of different ways. So we can measure um, the, the, the structure of the cortex, the sort of bark around the, the brain. We can measure the white matter. That's the sort of the wiring of the brain. Um, we can measure the, the networks in the brain, and we can measure the brain's response in terms of, you know, we can show the baby a face and look at which brain regions respond. Um, and what we're finding is that According to lots of these different measures, many brain systems are already up and running. Um, they're already going. They're already um, quite maturely connected, and they're already responding to um, stimuli from the environment, even right from birth. Because the, presumably, the old thinking was that while we are born with, you know, I don't know, ten billion neurons in our in our brain, that it's the connections between them are the things that you develop over time. So uh, you can distinguish an infant from an adult because the infant doesn't have those connections. But what you're saying is actually what science is finding is, isn't that? Sure. This is one of the, yes, the, this theory of interactive specialisation. There's a theory that says that um, it's the, the things that holds us, but that stops us functioning. It's that we don't yet have these long range connections in the brain. But what we're finding is that that's not the case. There are many of those long range connections are present. They obviously are not going to be um, refined in the way I'm not saying that Babies are tiny adults. Um, they're obviously not completely set up, but the big structure is already there um, and indeed might be shaping the way the baby is learning and, and, and developing. And Mali, you know, we know this, we have this sort of rapid development of the infant brain over this sort of critical three-year period. Talk to, bit, talk to me a bit about, about this and, you know, just how important is this period in terms of laying down the fundamentals for the rest of the baby's life? Absolutely critical, um, and, and and like what Rodri's saying is what what Rodri is saying there about how some of those structures are already there at birth. You have to also think of the fact that the baby is in utero for nine months, and one of the questions I would always ask parents is. In what context did this baby arrive into your lives or this pregnancy even? Because obviously the time that the baby is in utero does can have an impact. And, you know, there have been studies that have said that, um, you know, if, if a mother is extremely stressed out or has depression or, you know, incre increased levels of anxiety, their fetuses uh, levels of cortisol in their whilst they're pregnant um, take longer to disperse than another fetus, you know, of a mother who is isn't stressed. Now that those are just, you know, studies that have been conducted. So I think there definitely is when we talk about the perinatal period, we're talking about from, from the time of conception. But um, the first few years of life are absolutely critical. When I look at it as a clinical psychologist, in terms of the development of the attachment that the baby has with the parent, it's their uh, babies are programmed to attach to their parent in order to survive. And that's all about the parent's ability to tune to their baby, to be able to comfort them when they're in distress, to provide security when they go out and explore their world, to share in joyful moments and to give them that, that sense of value in themselves. And that is hugely important in the first three years. So all kind of development is related to the quality of the attachment. And, and this idea of the infant brain being a sponge or not being like a sponge, you know, so not sitting there waiting to be filled, but that actually the infants themselves are actively engaging and constructing their own understanding mm -hmm. of the world. You know, talk a bit about that in terms of specifically in terms of the idea of attaching then to its mum or dad or caregiver. 
Well, I mean, I think it's really important to get, you know, Rodri mentioned there about, uh, you know, speaking to his child more and kind of the importance of language. And like every interaction is a serve and return. We're talking about reciprocal interactions. So it's not just the case that the baby's just sitting there passively and not kind of engaging in that interaction. It is very much a kind of a case of, um, you know, the baby... Uh, smiles and the the parent smiles back or the baby cries and the parent soothes them that then becomes part of the child the baby's brain system pathways that they then expect soothing when they cry or they expect a smile when they smile it's about a serve and return it's very much a kind of a, a reciprocal interaction that's important and I wonder at the neuroscience level Rodri I mean can, can that be seen in in MRI scans or neuroimaging Absolutely. There's a, a, a couple of things come to mind. So so one of them is that, um, and this was probably one of the most surprising things we we've, we found, is that if you look at the frontal lobes and the, the regions of associated regions of the brain, which in adults, those are the brain regions that um, we engage when we're trying to do something really hard, or we're solving some difficult problem, or when we're trying to learn something new. Um, so, you know, it's that very deliberate, if you're sort of trying to learn to tango it's the deliberate stage where you have to think through every single brain step. aches yeah <laughs> brain aches and the classic story from developmental psychology is that those frontal lobes they're late developing systems they may not be up and running till ad- adolescence but what we're seeing is even in the first months of life even learning your first you know i mentioned rolling over or crawling even those first motor movements um if your frontal networks are disrupted then those first movements are disrupted so the frontal lobes and and their associated regions are already up and functioning and important in the first months of life so that really you know suggests that there's really sort of you feel like a lot more going on in there and those would be the sorts of systems that um you know would be could the baby could be intentionally um, sort of interacting or thinking and learning and and in terms of things like whether they feel pain I mean what what's kind of extraordinary is until I think it's fair to say reasonably recently the, you know clinicians would have thought that they don't feel pain this uh, I find this extraordinary but and you know until uh, the 1980s it was common um, for babies having an operation to be given a muscle block but not an anesthetic because it was believed that the baby's couldn't feel pain um, and there was some concern about the um, anesthetics uh, you know having having an effect on the baby's brain so um, the, the, the operations took place without anesthetic um, but then it was realized that and, the, and the, the babies would you know grimace and show expressions but this was thought to be just a reflex um, but it's been realized since then that you know if you do give anesthetic the babies uh they they look better when they come out of the operation and they recover more quickly and indeed if you use neuroimaging and look in the brain so people have done experiments where they just apply a a sort of heel prick of the the, to to the baby and you can see that the same network of brain regions that are activated in adults when they feel pain um should light up in babies so it's really suggesting that yeah so it's extraordinary i mean mali it brings to mind that big question that I know parents often would disagree about, which is this notion of crying it out. So do you leave an infant crying uh, in bed and just, you know, until they fall asleep or is that actually harmful? I think it depends on the age of the infant. I think, you know, when, when they're, when they're, 
when the baby is a very young baby, they really don't know how to soothe themselves. It's very difficult for them to be able to soothe their emotions. They need somebody to help them to calm down, to, to disperse those cortisol stress hormones that they let out when they cry. They need somebody to hold them. That whole touch thing is about the release of oxytocin, it's, which is a fertilizer for their brains. So it's absolutely, you know, it's not to say that, you know, it's going to necessarily cause long-term damage. I don't want to, parents to feel, you know, guilty if that's the advice that they were given and there's many books out there that would suggest that cry it out is an is a is an okay method to use I mean, if it's done repeatedly all the time, you know, where there's they there's this cry it out method, you know, it will it can impact on their brain in that the regions of the brain, the pathways that are more kind of linking stress to not being met in that stress are going to be made stronger so that as they get older, they're going to expect less soothing and they're going to be able, they're going to be less able to soothe others. I mean, that affects their kind of their, their, their frontal lobes, as we were talking about. But but if they're soothed enough times, they're going to expect that soothing, and they're going to be able to learn to soothe themselves. So it again, it's a it's it's a debate in terms of how much impact it has. But really, I think where the evidence rests now is that if at all possible, that you don't that you trust your instincts. And as a parent, I know my instinct certainly, you know, wasn't to be able to let my ba- my baby cry it out. But I can understand why parents do do it because it's so difficult to be a parent and they might have been advised to. Can we talk a bit about how the, the science and the, the clinical understanding of infant brains as well have, you know, can change policy? Because what's interesting, I suppose, is given the importance of these early years, you would imagine that, you know, governments would be pouring money in at that time to make sure that they had the sort of the best possible childcare, the best possible development. And yet, certainly in Ireland, the investment into early childcare is amongst the lowest, some of the lowest in the EU. And I wonder, Mally, you know, what does best childcare from zero to three look like? What should we be doing, given everything that we know? Well, I think we should be investing more money and more resources into this area. I think the issue is that you can't see the returns. If you invest into the early years and you, you provide early intervention and you invest into the into the childcare sector and, and you invest into supporting parents of zero to three-year-olds, you're investing in the future. There will be less health costs, less use of health services in the future, less crime, less use of probation, um, less use of special educational services. Really, you're investing in your in society and the future if you invest in the early years. So in terms of best practice, I think, you know, there's a lot of competing studies that would suggest, you know, it's better for a child to be at home with their parents in the first few years. Others that would talk about, um, you know, crashes, you know, whether they would talk about the benefits of crashes versus not the benefits of crashes. I think it really kind of depends on the type of care. I think for as long as you have a secure attachment with your parent and you spend enough time with your parent and they're there as kind of your anchor from which you can then go out and explore your world and that if you are in a childcare facility that you're well looked after, um, you know, that that's really important. But obviously we've had reports in the last few years in Ireland of, you know, childcare settings 
things that weren't optimal in terms of, you know, how many staff were there for each child and how they were kind of comforted when they when they needed support. So it really, I mean, I can't say what is best childcare, you know, but all I know is that there isn't enough investment. And even in my field of psychology, the reason I became so passionate about infant mental health is that I'm a primary care psychologist who's meant to work with zero to 18 year old children. And most of my work begins when the child is turned three. So I'm, I'm asked to do developmental assessments of children three and up or two and up. But really, when most of the brain development is happening before that in such a critical period, this is where my interest in this area of psychology became really important. And in perinatal psychology, which is all about supporting parents before they become parents and when they're pregnant, that is absolutely hugely important. So it's not just about zero to three. It's 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 when it's preparing for parenthood. Uh, Rodri, you know, you said when you had your son six years ago and everything that you knew from, from your work, you know, you spoke to him a lot about things that presumably he had no idea what you were saying, but it was exposing him to that diversity and I wonder from from your work what the, the potential policy implications could be. I mean, the idea of experience and providing babies, especially babies it's when they can't move up to whatever, eight, nine months, with that enriched, diverse environment, how important that is. Uh, absolutely. I completely agree. And, and I agree with, um, you know, what Mali was saying earlier that the... That they, um, the importance of these rich interactions that and there's evidence from neuroscience, for example, work from the Princeton uh, baby group, which is showing that when adults and babies interact, you're getting a synchronization of their brains and the, the babies are almost uh, acting to sort of encourage that process. So a baby will in their frontal lobes, they will plan to smile, they will smile. And, and that moment, there's an increased sort of synchronization between the, the parent and the, the baby. Um, there's also evidence that's... So there's like a sort of neural conversation that's happening between them. Exactly. And there's even evidence from uh, um, from a group by Patricia Cool in um, that uh, using a technique, um, a, a, another different sort of brain imaging technique called MEG, and this, this type of technique, there's evidence that um, even when a young baby is asked a, a question, their motor, even when they can't speak, their motor cortex in the frontal lobe, their premotor cortex, will light up as if, at some level, they're responding to your your questions. So I think, you know, we we really um, have this idea that there's a, there's a, there's good evidence that there's this um, interaction is really important. And so, from a from a point of view of of early uh, investment in 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 infants and children, and making sure that obviously people from different socioeconomic groups are are given the opportunities that everyone else can get. What you're saying then is what? That, you know, you need that sort of diverse environment? You need that diverse environment. And I'm glad you mentioned that the, the different socioeconomic groups, because there's there's real evidence that this is uh, important. So, for example, there's work from uh, James Boardman, who, who studied an enormous cohort in, in Scotland. And he found that being born to a more, in a more disadvantaged family was equivalent to being uh, born at sort of 20 weeks pre um, 20 weeks almost like a premature baby in terms of the eventual and the outcomes that you would see in childhood um, and so I think doing the sort of investment that you know countries like the United States has an early head start program where they uh, pay a enormous quantity of money each year for to, to help disadvantaged families to provide childcare for disadvantaged families and I think that's you know helping 
um, provide the child with a, a you know additional sources of of uh, in enriching interactions and also it's allowing the parents some time to you know enrich their own lives and to have a shower really yeah, and, to, and to just <laughs> make dinner really yeah enjoy the interact you know to, to make sure that the interactions they have with their child are of really high quality you know it's hard when you're um exhausted to always be to 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 be um to uh, to, to be, be on and to, to be yeah in, exactly. finally i mean one thing that i know, you know everyone who has uncle aunts or parents or whatever worry about from you know young children infants in particular is access to technology mali and i just wonder you know especially having endured lockdown uh, you know what is the best practice when it comes to those very early years in terms of screen time both television and also you know iphones and all the rest well, there is debate about it. Say the American Academy of Pediatrics said that uh, there shouldn't be any screen time for a baby or a child under the age of two. And the World Health Organization came up with um, not having more than one hour of screen time per day for under fives. But that was part of a greater initiative that was really trying to get um, children to be more active and so therefore have a less screen time. But really, I suppose as a clinician, what I would say is the most important thing is that the parents that there's the that interaction takes place the, the baby learns the most by having the face to face interaction with the parent and with others around them and through play i mean play is one thing we haven't talked about yet but it's one of the it's one of the greatest learning opportunities for babies and for children later on um, and i don't think all screen time is created equal so in other words i know it's not pr- parents are probably like shouting at the radio now saying how can you say you, you can't have screen time for under twos but really you know i'm a i'm a parent as well and I think it's okay to have it in kind of, you know, short spurts. There are also kind of educational apps that are out there that you can use with your young children and you can be interacting with them whilst you're doing that. But I'm, I'm kind of talking about excessive many hours on a screen for a very, very young baby um, and toddler it mightn't be the best, will not be as good as having that face-to-face contact with you and others and exploring their environment. It's not that they need your attention all the time, but just that ability to be be able to crawl on the floor and to do the things that they would otherwise do if they weren't sitting in front of a screen. So presumably it's not just, Rodri, about the fact that they're looking at screens, but it's what you're not doing while they're doing that, the opportunity of doing other things. Yes, exactly. I mean, I I don't think there's anything unique about screens in themselves. I mean, I I think when when um, when the book was first invented, people said that the, when the printing press was first invented, people said that the you know it was going to rot everybody's minds. We we wouldn't think that these days. Um, but uh, so you know it's not the screens, but if it's if the it's an alternative to a rich interaction, and if it takes over, then. Um, that, 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 that would be a concern. Well, it's such an interesting area. Thank you both so much for your time this evening and there's more on rte.ie forward slash brainstorm. But for now, Mali Coyne, NUI Galway and Rodri Cusack from Trinity College in Dublin. Thank you both very much.